I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to a special episode of my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. If you've been following this podcast, you know that I've been taking a short break here in December to focus on recovering from a double knee replacement surgery, and I just want to say thanks for those of you who sent me emails and cards and texts. I really appreciate your encouragement. I can't say I would recommend to anybody else to get both knees replaced at the same time. In fact, when I tell people I had both knees done, I usually get this you-must-be-nuts kind of look, and that's from my physical therapist. Uh, I think it was the right decision for me because it just shortens the total recovery time by probably six months compared to doing each knee separately. The really bad part was the first two weeks, and I got to say most of the severe pain is now hopefully behind me. So I just wanted to get in one last podcast before the end of the year, one more podcast on the life of David, because I had been using the Psalms as a springboard onto his life. But this episode is not based on a Psalm. It's based on 1 Samuel 17, and it's about David's encounter with Goliath. And I want to talk about courage, because I think we live in a time when followers of Jesus need significant courage to confront it's kind of all the ugliness, the moral, the cultural decay that we see happening all around us as we sort of continue to shift into a society where people of faith are marginalized and seem to be more and more in exile, even in their own land. So I'm going to jump into David and Goliath today. So this will be season two, episode four. You should probably pause the podcast now and just read 1 Samuel 17 for yourself because I won't be able to read the whole passage and it's really just such a great great story. You should read it in its fullness. Uh, I'll just be reading starting with verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out and against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them, and so he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked at David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he, st he struck down the Philistine and killed him. If I were to take a survey and ask people what story in the Bible best illustrates courage in the face of conflict, I'd be willing to bet good money that the number one answer would be this story of young David going up against the giant Goliath. I mean, it's a legendary feat of courage. It's epic. It's IMAX big. Uh, even people who don't know much about the Bible or know anything about the Bible still have some idea of what you're talking about when you say a David facing off against a Goliath. It's the universal underdog story, the under, underdog who miraculously finds victory in the face of overwhelming odds. David and Goliath is an all-time favorite children's tale, acted out in vacation Bible school dramas with little slings and robes made from bath towels. Though parts of the story are sanitized for younger audiences, I mean, they, they usually don't act out the part where David cuts off Goliath's head and carries the bloody mess back to King Saul as proof of the victory. They kind of leave that part out. In this podcast, I want to look at the story of David and Goliath, and I want to do two things. First, I want us to look at one way in which David is a good example and a necessary example of how we should approach conflict with courage in our lives today. And second, I want to look at one way in which David would be a terrible model of how we should deal with our conflicts in our day. So let's take a look at what's going on in this chapter from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, this year is about uh, 1035 BC. The Israelites under King Saul are locked into the stalemate in a battle against the Philistines. For 300 years, there had been nothing but bad blood between the Philistines and Israel. When Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, he conquered everything except three cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And those were the hometowns for the clans of the Philistines. The Israelites held the hill country. The Philistines held the flatter plains down toward the Mediterranean Sea. The two armies were squared off on either side of the Valley of Elah and had settled into basically a stalemate. But the Philistines have a giant of a champion named Goliath who stood like Godzilla and he had nothing but hatred for the people of Israel. Every day for 40 days, we're told, Goliath stepped out into the open ground and issued a challenge. Give me a man and let us fight, he says in verse 10. On one level, it was a challenge to have a battle of champions. Send out your best fighter. Let's just settle this mano a mano, hand-to-hand -hand combat to the death, winner take all. It wasn't the rumble in the jungle. It was the melee in the mountains. Goliath challenged their courage, their bravery, their masculinity, and on a deeper level, he blasphemed their God. He was a challenge to prove, uh, his was a challenge to prove whose God was stronger, Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, or this Yahweh that he had been hearing about. 
So for 40 days, he has been taunting the Israelites with and insulting their God, and they are too afraid to do anything about it. Verse 11, when they heard it was Goliath who gave the challenge, they were terrified and lost all hope. They lost all hope. Wow, I mean, that's an incredible statement. Goliath was really getting into their heads. They were starting to believe that this problem was bigger than their God. Ever had a problem like that that did it to you? A big problem that just grew so much in your mind that not only did it intimidate you, but made you doubt that God was big enough to handle it? A problem like that, it gets into your head. It's your first thought in the morning, your last thought at night. You might have a Goliath like that going on in your life right now, something that is just taunting you, something that brings up all your fears. Maybe it's about unemployment or depression or family strife. Could be memories of sexual abuse or school or grades, whiskey, your past, your future. How long has this thing taunted you? How long have you believed that this problem is bigger than your God? And here comes David. Remember, he's the youngest in his family, the runt of the litter, barely a teenager. David had previously been consigned to the most menial of all household jobs, which was taking care of the sheep. His father now sent him to take loaves of bread and bricks of cheese to his older brothers who served in King Saul's army. There was no Uber Eats, no DoorDash back then. Families supplied the warriors from their clan with food, and since he was too young and too small to do anything else, he's promoted to the job of grocery store delivery boy. And whether it's his youthful ignorance or naive exuberance or a rock-siled faith in God— He's flabbergasted when he sees what is happening on the front lines of the battle. Nothing. Nothing is happening. No one is doing anything. Goliath is being a bully. He's insulting their God every day. Every day he comes out and totally blasphemes the God of the Israelites. And the Israelite army is sitting around playing words with friends. King Saul has even offered a reward for anyone who would be willing to face Goliath in battle. He offered his daughter's hand in marriage and no more taxes for the entire clan. What a deal. It's literally a king's ransom. No takers. The army of the Israelites, all the men are staring at the ground, shuffling their sandals in the dirt. So David speaks up. David starts asking questions. And his older brothers, the same guys who were in total fear of Goliath, they show nothing but contempt for this little pipsqueak. Like usual in his family, he's treated with scorn. Verse 29, David says in frustration, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? His questions get reported to King Saul, and Saul is so desperate he'll try anything except go out and face Goliath himself, which is exactly what a true king of Israel should have done. Saul should have been the one going out trusting in the power of Yahweh to defeat Goliath in hand-to-hand combat, but he didn't. He was hiding behind the lines too. So Saul has this audience with young David. Now, David had never fought a giant before, had never seen a giant before, had never fought any human being before. But David is all in. He is ready to rock and roll. He tells King Saul that in the hills of Bethlehem, he had experienced firsthand God's power and protection while guarding his sheep against lions and bears. This from like a 14-year-old kid. He had a God-infused confidence, and he was ready to face any conflict because he knew God would be at his side. Saul tries to get him prepared with the standard template for battle, body armor, sword, shield, but David is too skinny. The armor just kind of falls off him. And thankfully, David is smart enough to realize that he should stick with his strengths, do what he had been trained to do, use the weapon he was accustomed to using. He got his shepherd's sling, a common tool for shepherds worldwide. 
I mentioned in a previous podcast my experience with shepherds in Bolivia up in the Andes Mountains, where the Quechua Indian women tend the flocks of sheep and goats. Now, they all wear a sash belt around their waists, and if they see some goat straying away from the herd, they can whip that belt off their waist in an instant, load it with a rock, and bonk that goat on the noggin more than 50 feet away. I've seen them do it. David's sling is a lot more powerful than that. You'll see similar slings used today if you watch news footage when Palestinians are riding against the Israeli soldiers. They can whip a rock at a speed of a, like a major league pitcher's fastball. And David is a crack shot with his sling. And so the scene is set. A slender, beardless boy, a shepherd with a shepherd's sling, who stoops in a creek bed to load up five smooth stones. And facing him is Goliath. He's so big, he's a one-man freak show. I mean, he's wearing 125 pounds of armor. His muscles just ripple. I mean, he's Hulk Hogan and The Rock combined. And everyone believes he's going to smash David like a bug. Now, some people get stuck on the question of Goliath's height. How tall was Goliath really? The traditional Hebrew text measurement used here says Goliath was six cubits and a span in height. A cubit was measured as the distance from the tip of your finger to the tip of your elbow. Eventually, the cubit got standardized at about 18 inches. A span was the width of the fingers on a spread hand. That got standardized at about 9 inches. So using those measurements, that would make Goliath 9 feet 9 inches tall. That's what it says in the, what's called the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, which is dated to about 1000 AD and was the only Hebrew manuscript available to scholars who created the King James Bible. But other earlier versions of the Old Testament have a different height for Goliath. Like, for example, when the Dead Sea scroll, Scrolls were discovered, uh, they date back to the 2nd century BC, but they weren't discovered until 1947. And then there's the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and that's what was widely used in Jesus' day. And then thirdly, there's the 1st century Jewish historian Josephus, who quotes this passage. They all say together that the height was four cubits and a span, not six cubits and a span, which would make Goliath about seven feet tall. So nine feet, nine inches or seven feet. I'm kind of going to go with the second height, which is easily believable. But whether it's four cubits or six cubits, it's still a lot of cubits. Goliath is big and he's twirling his 25 pound spear as easily as a cheerleader twirls a baton. David walks out in front of a forest of spears to face him. A toothpick versus a Tyrannosaurus. Goliath can't believe his eyes. Is this all you've got? I mean, he scoffs at this kid, literally calls him stick boy in verse 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I mean, what odds would you give for David on FanDuel or DraftKings? Not good. But here's the key verse about why David is a good role model for us in thinking about courage and conflict. Verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. David wasn't trembling in fear. David wasn't thinking, oops, this was a big mistake. No, suddenly David is no longer kneeling at the brook collecting stones. He's running. It was the only smart thing to do. Everyone expected him to run, but he's running the wrong way. He's running toward Goliath, not away from the giant, towards him. The eyes of the Israelites and the Philistines are just popping out of their heads because no one ran towards Goliath. He might as be running, well, be running off a cliff or running straight into a brick wall. But because of David's confidence in God, his courage led him into the battle. 
and there was one stone zinged to the center of Goliath's forehead, and that was it. The stone hit Goliath uh, with skull-crushing force, and it was game over. A savage coup de grace when David chopped off his head. Now, here's the one thing I want us to learn from this story about David. There's a lot of things we could explore, but one thing. We need to discover the courage to go towards our conflicts. Go towards our conflicts. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world without any conflict? No arguments, no more people on the warpath at work, no more angry debates about who said what to whom and why, no more squabbles about bedtime or homework or hurt feelings or whose fault it is, just peace and tranquility. But life is just not like that, and every day brings conflict, sometimes painful conflict. We fight with our family, our friends, our children, our spouse, our co-workers, our competitors. We swear at the other driver. Our bosses yell at us because they're mad at someone else. And so we take it out on the first person we run into. Conflict is unavoidable. And it's also necessary for all of life. You can't really escape it, and you shouldn't really want to. Because conflict is defined as the opposition of wills, principles, or forces. It is part of our biology, our psychology, and our fabric of our daily lives. We would lose the opposing forces that hold up bridges and buildings without conflict. All the laws of thermodynamics would disappear without conflict. All the laws of motion and friction. Conflict creates the music we listen to, the cars we drive. It permits birds and airplanes to fly. If we did away with all conflict, our cells would stop regenerating. Surfers would have no waves to ride on. Sailors would have no wind. We wouldn't be able to walk because walking requires oppositional forces interacting with each other. And unfortunately, that requires knees that actually work. So I know I'm learning a little bit more about those oppositional forces that require or that enable people to walk. We wouldn't be able to eat or swallow or suck on a straw. Conflict is a function of nature and not a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. Conflict simply is. That doesn't mean we have to like it or enjoy it or cause it or seek it, but we better learn how to live with it. Because the main problem with, with courage and conflict is that we don't do it very well. And so there's a strong tendency to avoid conflict. When was the last time you ran toward a challenge, especially when that challenge was another person? Most normal people kind of avoid conflict. It's uncomfortable. It's stressful. We tend to retreat. We duck behind a desk at work. We turn on a video game, pretend everything is okay. We avoid people in the hallway or crawl into a bottle. We give in. We look the other way. We ignore as best as we can. We make a joke about it. Look for anything that can be a distraction so that we don't have to face the situation head on. But your Goliath is still there booming its insults. And here's the thing that I've had to learn in my life. Conflict isn't always a bad thing. In fact, if handled right, healthy conflict is the best way to move a relationship or organization forward. Conflict arises partly because people are different. We perceive other people in situations differently, and those differences allow for different opinions and choices, and that causes conflict. And conflict is inevitable between people who care about each other. It can be healthy because it can open the doors to deeper understanding and better communication. If conflict can be creatively managed for good, God can use healthy conflict as a part of our growth process, emotionally, spiritually, and just in maturity. Proverbs 27:17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Iron against iron, that creates sparks. That's conflict. When done right, it sharpens and makes us better. 
That's why resolving conflict is the key area for staying in love and staying married. If couples don't learn how to work out their conflicts in a healthy way, trouble will always follow. Conflict simply is. You don't have to like it or cause it or seek it. I'm not encouraging anyone to become a rageaholic who gets into a fight with every person you meet. But you and I need to understand conflict, and we need to move toward it in a courageous way. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Opposition, conflict, it is part of the Christian experience. But Christian people in particular have had a hard time facing conflict in a healthy way. Why? Because Christians were supposed to be nice, right? We're supposed to be understanding and patient and kind and forgiving and all those virtues that seem to go against the idea of getting into conflict with others. But the feelings are still there. The tension, the anxiety, the headaches, the misunderstanding, the hurt that can turn into a bitterness. It's all there, but we're supposed to be nice. And that means we pretend. We try to forget about it. We sweep it under the rug. And somehow we've been taught that burying conflicts is the best thing to do. Ignore what's really going on. But folks, whether that's in a church or a family or a relationship or a business, burying all the stuff never works long term. It just builds resentment, anger, and anxiety grows. Eventually, it begins to drain you of energy and colors your entire perception of life. Eventually, those feelings get resurrected and usually not in a positive way. Usually, there's an explosion and the fallout can be huge. In reality, the pressure to be nice comes from more of a place of fear than a place of obedience to Christ. Proverbs 29:25 says, Fear of man will provide... Well, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It's the fear of someone else that shuts down healthy conflict. The one way I wish I, we could be more like David is in honestly and courageously facing the many destructive people we see in the world around us. In facing people who are rude or vulgar, incompetent or obstructive or destructive. To many Christian folks, give them a pass. Why? Confrontation. It's not a Christian thing to do. It's not the Christian thing to do to make a scene, to hurt someone's feelings. I mean, telling one to shape up or ship out. How can you do that as a Christian? Christians are supposed to be forgiving. Now, Edward Friedman calls this dilemma one of the most destructive elements Christians face. He calls it a failure of nerve, something Jesus never had. I can tell you so many sad stories of young pastors who get murdered by their congregations for this very reason. <coughs> Excuse me. Or churches that implode because someone, usually a longtime member, is just a destructive force in the church and other Christians let it happen. They're afraid to confront. And it happens outside the church too. People held hostage by outbursts of rage or sarcasm, hamstrung by their own sense of inadequacy. Someone acts like an emotional terrorist and throws hand grenades in every meeting and no one ever stops them. A person used to throwing his or her weight around. They like getting what they want. They demand it. They play the power game to run their family, their church, their office, their team, their community group. You see, we don't just have bullies on the playground. There are a lot of emotional bullies in this world, just toxic people who are allowed to kill groups, poison ideas, derail programs, hurt the church. The way our culture is going, there are more and more people with borderline personality disorders. 
youth sports coaches or fans who are out of control, mama bears who go on the attack if they think their little cub is being threatened, people overreacting just way out of proportion to an actual event. And when they are not confronted by those who are in leadership or in power, the rest of the people lose confidence in their leaders and will pull back. When those in the authority are seen as ineffective or weak or paralyzed, more people withdraw. And then the groups polarize. There's a loss of trust. Enthusiasm goes down the drain. People resort to subversion, sabotage, gossip. Leaders and groups are held hostage because of one loud voice, victimized because people are afraid to confront a problem person. It leads to gridlock in families, companies, churches, community groups. This is how churches die. No one is willing to run toward the battle. In the world we live in, we all need to be graduate students of healthy conflict, especially when it comes to destructive antagonists. Antagonists are not to be confused with mere disagreements or normal criticism. These are folks who are out to destroy, who go out of their way to attack, and they will burn the house down in order to get their way. They cannot be reasoned with. They do not know how to compromise or discuss things honestly. Their internal anxiety forces them to try and dominate, and they do not respond to you being nice. To them, that's like a shark sensing blood in the water. It just encourages them. The more nice you are, the more they will just suck you dry. They require a firm response. M. Scott Peck writes about this in his book, People of the Lie. He says, and I quote, I've learned no- if I've learned nothing in 20 years that would su- let me start over again. I have learned nothing in 20 years that would suggest that evil people can be rapidly influenced by any means other than raw power. They do not respond, at least in the short run, to either gentle kindness or any form of spiritual persuasion with which I am familiar, unquote. So being nice, just keeping the peace at any price. Well, you, you reach a point where the price is going to be too high. No one should say, I'll wait until it affects me personally, because that's like saying, I won't get involved because it's your end of the canoe that's sinking. Somebody has to grow a backbone. Somebody has to be willing to step into the danger zone and confront bad behavior before it does irreparable damage. As Stephen Hawke, creator of the Stevens Ministry Pastoral Care System, writes, and I quote, What an absurd tragedy if we allow the flock to be devoured because everyone thought it was impolite to cry wolf, unquote. Now, here's one way we should not be like David in how we approach conflict. Not everything in life is a life and death battle. Not every conflict is 100% good versus 100% evil. We need to know what kind of conflict we are in so that we can right-size our response. We need to right-size our actions which may even take even greater courage than just getting into a fight. Not every conflict is a life or death struggle. Not every conflict is a winner-take-all situation. Win-lose is an appropriate attitude in a sporting event, but not in a marriage or in a family or in an important relationship. We have to know what kind of conflict we are in and then right-size our response to that conflict. And sometimes that means we don't go nose-to-nose with the person at all. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You don't have to bump heads in every situation. You don't have to be right all the time. Because sometimes the right thing to do is to de-escalate the emotion. Be the calm one, the calmest person in the room, the one who can redirect the emotion and come to a better resolution. 
For too many people, conflict just means flying off the handle and getting as loud as they can. We see too many of those videos of people acting badly in, you know, in stores or out on the street, you know, situations where it's just not necessary. And we have to have the ability, the ability, the humility to admit that we may not be 100% right in our view of a situation. Maybe we are wrong. Maybe we need to have the humility to admit that we were in the wrong or that we were misunderstood or that we misunderstood. And that actually might take more courage than just going on the attack. So there are times when the most loving thing you can do is to enter into conflict and run towards your giant with a God-saturated soul. There may be times in the year ahead (coughs) where you must summon up God's courage within you and run towards a battle. When you need to stand up for yourself or someone else who is being emotionally or spiritually bullied, stand up to protect your ministry, your church, your family, your sense of well-being. (coughs) And there may be times when you're called on to be the peacemaker who calms things down and clarifies exactly what's going on. Both responses call for courage. And I hope that's a good word for you for the year ahead. Take care.